I'm going to be honest with you. I do not like reading. When I tell someone I read something the other day or that I read a book, I'm probably 75% lying. Rather, I like listening. And that's why I turn to science podcasts and radio shows that talk all about the nitty-gritty scientific phenomena that make the world turn. But not all podcasts are created equal. Oftentimes, they are super rehearsed, and it's like they're read from a teleprompter. It's just, I don't know, lacks genuine. That's why I decided to make a radio program that lets us explore the world of science through conversations with aspiring scientists of tomorrow. My name is Louis Colorotolo, and I am trying my best to get a PhD in the University of Guelph in the Food Science Department. And maybe if I spent a little less time making this radio show and a little bit more time working, I might be moving along faster. But what my graduate department doesn't know won't hurt them. Today, you're going to hear a conversation with Lian Guo, a graduate student I met back in Massachusetts. Lian loves fish, probably just a little more than she loves talking about fish. Lian is a super accomplished and one of the best young science communicators I know. We are going to talk about overfishing, blue tourism, climate change, and how we can help the ocean. Now, keep in mind, we are not experts, merely graduate students, and we don't know everything. That's why you're listening to We Know Some Stuff, the scientists of tomorrow talking today. Hi, Leanne. How are you doing today? Great. I'm doing great. How are you? I am very good over here. Can you tell us a little bit about your educational history? Sure. Uh, for undergrad, I went to Scripps College, which is a women's college in California. And I did my undergrad degree in organismal biology, studying intertidal barnacles and how they're affected by temperature. Um, but right now, I am at University of Massachusetts Amherst, studying organismic and evolutionary biology, actually doing a PhD degree. And I'm studying now uh, young juvenile fishes and how they're affected by things like climate change, how much food is available, and um, what that means for how well they grow and store fat on their body. Oh, wow. Super interesting stuff. I know that uh, a lot of people know a little bit about fish, but know a lot less about fish than we think we know about fish. <laughs> Surprising, because we're all fish, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, right? Like, of course. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, I, I wanted to talk about a few things that I think are super interesting in what it comes to the interaction between humans and fish. Um, because when I think of that phrase in my head, the first thing I think of is eating fish. So how does mm -hmm. our uh, eating behaviors and, and our consumption affect the population and uh, the environment that uh, fish live in? It's a great question. I mean, the United, well, I'm from the United States, and I believe you are originally too, right? Yes, I am. But you're in, currently in Canada. But uh, the whole world eats fish. I mean, it's one really important source of protein. I think it makes up about 20% of the protein eaten worldwide. Um, but the issue is, is that we have a preference for certain types of fish, and that the technology we use to catch fish has changed, obviously, drastically over time. Just as our computers have changed drastically, so has our fishing technology. And so at one point when what we would use to catch fish would be, you know, like simple boats and nets, now we have these giant commercial trawling vessels, which can 
catch many, many tons of fish at one time. And what we once thought was impossible to overfish the ocean, as in like catch more fish than they could potentially sustain their own populations. Now we actually have found that we can actually deplete populations to levels where they can no longer come back or they're just persist at very low population levels. Um, and so our eating habits and the choices we make in the fish that we eat, of course, then affect what fishermen are trying to catch, how much they're catching. And in the end, that means that we have ecosystems that look very, very different than they did hundreds of years ago. That's super interesting stuff. I mean, we think about species uh, becoming extinct all the time, right? When I think of an extinct species, I think of, you know, the, the beautiful rare red panda or, or <laughs> the, you know, the, the snowy lynx. And we think of these as big, majestic, almost like fairy tale like creatures becoming extinct. But in reality, you're telling me that fish, the fish that like I had, you know, three, ten years ago, are becoming extinct. Certainly. Um, there's one local example, at least to the northeast of the United States, that I can think of. It's not probably just due to us overfishing, but also due to climate change and then the, the um, building of dams and rivers. Um, are you familiar with that story at all? Uh, go for it. <laughs> I can make it short. Um, but, you know, Canadians are probably very familiar with Atlantic salmon because guess what? They still have Atlantic salmon, whereas we don't have Atlantic salmon anymore, really, down in Massachusetts and Connecticut. Um, what happened, essentially, is that Atlantic salmon, which used to come up the Connecticut River, Hudson River, all of these places in, in the Northeast, they started disappearing. And all of these uh, groups, including the Fish and Wildlife Service, started to have these national hatcheries where literally years and years, they would dump they would raise and then dump millions of baby Atlantic salmon back into the rivers to try and get their populations to come back. And you know what? It never really worked. This year, we've had zero Atlantic salmon come back into our rivers. And they even tried to bring Atlantic salmon from Maine, their populations in Maine, back down to the Connecticut River to try and get them to reestablish. And it was unfortunately a huge failure. And so they just within the last couple of years, they've decided to redirect the efforts to a fish to fish species that are more likely to come back. Um, but you can just imagine like salmon. Everyone loves salmon. Salmon's very popular in the grocery store. Now we have to import all of our Atlantic salmon from other places, most notably, probably like Norway and Sweden is where we get our Atlantic salmon. So this species that used to be so plentiful in this area used to sustain, you know, indigenous tribes and just other people in this area completely gone now because of reasons that are probably both anthropogenic and natural in nature. This is really kind of terrifying in its own sense. Um, because yeah. I, I had salmon for dinner yesterday, so mm -hmm. I feel guilty. Like you telling me <laughs> that I feel I feel like a bad person right now. But I imagine if we're getting all of our fish from over in Europe and Scandinavian areas, that has to be a, a lot of pollution in order to fly or uh, or, or, or transport via the ocean uh, all that fish over to uh, America and Canada. And I'm assuming probably Mexico as well, because uh, salmon is a cold water fish. Well, there so there are West Coast salmon, so they probably would prefer to get them from over there. But they tend since those are natural wild stocks still, 
Those tend to be more expensive, at least to the consumer, than us ordering those frozen fillets um, from Europe. But you're right, there's there's potential pollution in multiple aspects. There is the transport process of getting the fish to the places where we actually eat them. But there's also the process of raising the fish themselves. So when you have aquaculture, which is when you're essentially culturing fish or other products, um, just like a farm, but in the ocean or other freshwater bodies, um, you actually have to feed them a lot of other fish sometimes to get them to be large and consumable. Um, And so in that process, you can actually have a lot of fish waste. There's attempts now to try and feed them things like soybeans or even insects. They're trying to be, you know, a little bit more woke about (laughs) how they're feeding these fish. Um, But that's definitely a process which can cause some pollution. Having fish in the ocean and feeding them, they're, of course, just going to be pooping all over the ocean floor in that area. And actually, Norway has been doing a pretty good job, I think, as far as trying to rotate where they have these these um, places where they have these giant pens with Atlantic salmon in them. Um, there's another thing that you that probably would be surprising to you is that, you know, when they have these Atlantic salmon in the ocean that they're trying to re- raise just for feeding, those fish have been very probably carefully bred to make them the fast growing, uh, high, very edible fish that they are today. And they're very different genetically than the wild fish runs that they have there. But the problem is, is that those pens often break open. And so you can have uh, outbreaks, essentially, of those stock fish, the hatchery fish, and they're way more numerous than the wild stocks there. So this is kind of a problem they don't really talk about is like, you know, when these hatchery fish get out and it kind of overwhelm the natural populations, what the potential outcome might be of that. Oh, wow. So it's almost like, you know, you get a, you get a zoo of animals and the, the pen breaks open and now <laughs> these salmon are wreaking havoc on all the normal salmon that are in the ocean. So does it become an issue where the uh, the farmed salmon that are now free in the ocean are out competing the natural salmon because they're so efficient at growing? That's definitely the concern. Uh, they do try to make them, they do try to do things like making them triploid so that they can't reproduce when they're out in the wild. So at least they can't interbreed. But, you know, nature finds a way. It's hard to know. They probably could outcompete the natural salmon. And honestly, like, I don't know how much research has been done to know what actually does happen when these hatchery fish make it into the natural system, what then happens to the wild fish. And honestly, it's hard for them to know what, what, how wild are their populations anymore. They've already had decades of hatchery fish making it into these wild populations. So are there fish wild? I don't think they know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's kind of terrifying in its own sense to not even know what the fish is at this point. Uh, Another interesting thing that I know you know a little bit about is what you call blue tourism. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. Uh, Blue tourism is essentially like water-based tourism. So you can think about people who are coming to the coast for recreational fishing. So fishing for fun, fishing to bring stuff home. There's also, you're probably familiar with the idea of going somewhere and snorkeling or scuba diving on coral reefs. 
some people just like to go on boats and do whale watching or um, there's like glass bottom boats. So all of those things where people are coming to water bodies and uh, taking time to <laughs> recreate, I guess, um, those would all be considered part of blue tourism or coastal tourism. It's a huge industry. I think over, I mean, almost, I think 200 billion a year is um, spent globally in supporting coastal tourism. Okay, I am going to take this moment so that it doesn't, you know, come out later when I am, you know, insanely a, a social media celebrity and, you know, I'm going to get cancel cultured. <laughs> I I went to Puerto Rico with a friend. I have, I have a friend who's from Puerto Rico that went to a university in Massachusetts and we did a lot of scuba diving. It wasn't with necessarily an instructor or anything. And, and it wasn't even a, a fenced off area. We went just into these uh, these coral reefs and they were so beautiful, Leanne. Oh my God, they were so beautiful. But now I feel bad. What is my scuba <laughs> diving doing to affect that coral reef? So it really depends on what you're doing when you're there. Um, there's this idea that, you know, if you do ecotourism, which is supposed to be eco-friendly tourism, that we should be able to enjoy these natural wonders and also educate people, you know, about them and why they are so special and need to be preserved. Um, so some things that, of course, would be bad if you had done while you were there, which you don't have to say anything. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. Who, who, I'm um, not sweating anymore. Be, no. <laughs> I'll just say them and we can just say, uh-huh, uh-huh, okay. okay, yeah, yeah. okay. Um, certainly, if you are standing on or breaking off pieces of coral, that will damage the coral. They are very, very sensitive. And so um, essentially when you break off a piece of coral, it causes the zooxanthellae, which are just like essentially little creatures living in the coral structure. Um, they will flee very quickly from the coral if they are not, if if they're perturbed, if they're disturbed um, by anything. So I've I've seen people break off like a piece of coral and it immediately bleaches. It becomes white, and that's kind of when you know that they are not happy, and that that coral is probably going to die without the zooxanthellae there. So I would love to clear something up really quickly. Coral are alive. I think most people think that coral is some sort of rock or or more like um, something kind of not alive so much. Tell me this. A, a coral is like a living being? Yeah, it's a very fascinating um, thing because they essentially have this symbiosis between the coral itself and then these zooxanthellae, which live inside the coral polyps, they call them. Um, the coral provides a safe, protected environment for the zooxanthellae to live on. And then the zooxanthellae are, I believe, algae. Um, they, they can do photosynthesis and get energy to supply the coral with nutrients that they need. So they, they work together so, yeah, so that's um, that symbiosis. The, you know, the, the coral helps out the algae or the zim, zimba zab 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 zab
Uh, Zoe Zanthelli. Yeah, that, that one, that one. Um, and then yeah, the, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then the, it goes the other way around too. So there's that symbiosis. They're working together, and they're both benefiting from that relationship. Exactly. So these coral, they're alive, and if you break one off, it's going to be a real issue because you got all of your little friends that were living in all the little nooks and the crannies. They're going to scatter away, and then both of them are going to die, I'm assuming, because they don't have each other to uh, uh, be symbiosis with. Right. And once that happens, the coral become bleached, and then, which is when they turn white, essentially. They're dead at that time. Um, and then what usually happens is that you start to have other algae grow on top of the coral and that sort of environment where it's what we call algae dominated is not an environment which is nearly as hospitable to things like fish and other species. So I don't know when you were there, if you ever saw some dead coral reefs and noticed kind of what they might look like compared to living coral reefs. Uh, I, you know, I did see some, and I think a number of people have probably seen images of like a bleached coral reef. And and if you, if you haven't, like, you know, take the opportunity right now to Google it. It's really sad. It is really sad. And it's, it's one of those things that they actually te teach classically in ecology is um, a phase shift, essentially, in an ecosystem where one phase would be the healthy coral reef system where all the corals are alive. There's a lot of homes. There's a lot of shelter for fish and other species. And then if some sort of disturbance event happens where the coral die and then algae starts to dominate, it becomes very, very difficult for that new ecosystem to return back to what was once a healthy ecosystem. And so having these coral reefs die, as happens sometimes with these bleaching events, like on the Great Barrier Reef, um, it's it can sometimes be an irreversible event. And then I think that's why people are so worried that, you know, by 2050 or something like that, like all of the world's coral reefs are going to be dead and we're not going to be able to come back to it. It's definitely depressing to think about. Yeah, that that is really terrifying. Um, what other kind of things as a tourist should you not be doing? Definitely not polluting. Um Pollution in water is a huge issue, and this is just like trash pollution, for example. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard about the trash gyres in the ocean. Uh, is that like the floating garbage islands? Yes, the floating garbage islands that are ginormous, um, but no, many people do not seem to know about. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> actually, yeah, I'm surprised by how few people know about them, but... Leaving, for example, when you come and visit a coral reef, like some people will bring stuff with them if they have a boat and then they just throw things overboard oh, and that stuff can't the bottom. It can wash up on beaches. But what people should know is that animals will eat your trash. So things like fish, sharks, they found all sorts of things in shark stomachs, in bird stomachs. Um, people forget sometimes that, you know, Oceanic birds are part of the marine ecosystem. So all of these things will eat our trash and they can die from it, of course. So certainly I would say, you know, if you're going to bring stuff with you, like food, water, which of course is important so that you don't <laughs> die when you're out there, keep hydrated, keep well fed. Just make sure that you're carrying out just like you would for a campsite on land. All right. Well, that is some really good advice. So now we have to 
go from one depressing topic to the next depressing topic. And, and now we're <laughs> finally on to our third depressing topic, climate change. What is climate change doing to the ocean? So many things. I know. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> um, I'll try to focus a bit on, on fish just because that's, I guess, what I'm most familiar with. Um, yeah, climate change is affecting fish species in a number of different ways and not always in expected ways either. Uh one thing that it's causing to happen around the world, not just a fish species, is it's causing what we call range shifts. So if you think about, you know, where a fish has historically lived, where it's been distributed over time, now we're seeing that the changes in climate are actually causing these, these distributions to shift. And often they're shifting toward the poles. So they might be going toward you know, the North Pole, they're in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, and the fish species are also not shifting at exactly the same rate. So you can imagine like a predator, a large predator species is actually not moving nearly as quickly as a small, shorter lived fish species. So if we return to this idea of like an ecosystem being in place and like being healthy. If you have predators and prey shifting in and out of areas at different rates, you're kind of restructuring and reshuffling ecosystems around the world, which is potentially very scary, especially for someone like me who's an ecologist. I imagine. So when we talk about climate change, we're not talking about uh, today it's really hot, yesterday was really cold. We're not talking about, you know, uh, some person, member of Congress throwing a snowball in the middle of a hearing uh but you know we hear these things where like okay the, the the temperature of the earth is like one degree warmer two degrees uh warmer here and there how can you know like such a small change in the temperature of the ocean cause fish to i, I guess more or less relocate closer to colder waters i mean if it was one degrees hotter here i would probably just suck it up <laughs> Yeah, it's a great question. Um, to be honest, like we haven't necessarily clearly figured out how a one degree difference causes all of these changes to occur. We can kind of hypothesize, but there hasn't necessarily been a study that was saying this is it. You know, this is the answer as to why fish are moving <laughs> where they're living. Um, but one potential thing is that the way that organisms have evolved is in reaction to the environment around them. So one fish species, if you look at how well they reproduce over a given range of temperatures, it's usually pretty consistent. So they're going to have some temperature where they'll reproduce the best at, and that might mean like they lay the most eggs or they might have the most actual success of hatching those eggs at a certain temperature. So when you shift for example, the baseline temperature of the ocean up a degree on average, you're generally speaking, potentially causing a slight decrease in how well that fish is going to reproduce for its entire population. Now, of course, climate change isn't just an average increase. It's also a change in how variable temperatures are. And we are expecting to see more extreme temperatures. And it's it's not clear whether it's that change in average temperature that's really driving these negative effects 
or those extreme events, like if we have extreme die-offs or something like that during high temperature events that could be causing fish then to be shifting their populations. Um, again, this is all hypothetical, but if you have those persistent decreases in reproduction or many other important life processes um, because of that change in temperature, you can see how just over time, fish populations are not going to be necessarily doing as well as they once were. Oh, and that honestly really is such a, a shame because this is going to affect so many parts of our life. It's going to affect uh, the food that we eat, uh, even the food that the food that we eat eat, and uh, <laughs> that that tourism that we were talking about. Where what other things in our everyday life will we see? happen because of climate change uh, that has to do with the fish? Yeah, aside from the fish themselves, we have to think about the people who use them. So there's people whose jobs depend on the seafood industry, for example, um, especially in New England, we have a lot of fishermen. And when fish, the fish that they have the gear for and that they've been historically catching for decades now are no longer existing in the area that they classically have been. They essentially have to figure out whether they're going to go farther, which costs more money to go farther to get the fish that they've always wanted, or if they're going to basically completely restructure the type of fishing fleet they have to now catch a different species or to take a new advantage of new species that are coming into their area um, so you can think about the livelihoods that this is going to affect both at the fishing level, the people who are processing the fish. Um, there's a lot of potential livelihoods there that are going to be affected. And that's just in the United States. You can think about other countries where is your livelihood at the family level and having not having fewer fish or having different types of fish could potentially affect the ability of a fisherman to supply food for his family. Um, so that's that's definitely a concerning thing. When you have fish, which there's over 33,000 species of fish around the world, and when you have them in crisis, it can completely restructure the other species that are in the ocean. So thinking about, you know, whales even, there are plenty of whale species which depend on small, what we call forage fish, which are eaten by a lot of other species. Um, and so whales populations depend on fish and healthy ecosystems. So even if you don't care about fish, I hope most people care about things like whales right. and sea turtles whales, and birds. Turtles, penguins. <laughs> penguins are a big one. Everyone loves penguins, right? Yes. Everyone loves pictures of penguins and puffins with those tiny little fish in their mouths. Oh, like fish so are a problem for the, the entire marine aquatic ecosystem. And honestly, even terrestrial ecosystems. So the fish species that I work on, um, river herring, we've seen like raccoons eating them. We've oh seen snapping turtles eat them when they're in the rivers. So there's a lot of things which depend on fish in the ocean and having them be reduced in numbers or in different places. There's a lot of downstream effects that I don't think we as scientists even grasp the full scope of yet. That's a that's a real shame. I can only imagine maybe a potentially effective PSA would be like a raccoon crying. Well, there's some people who seem to not like raccoons <gasps> very much. They're adorable. No. <laughs> I think so 
too, but there are some people who are like, those rascals, I'm going to get my BB gun out. And I just can't believe that. <laughs> oh, shame. Yeah, I had a raccoon living in my garbage for about a month. And I was too, <laughs> honestly, I was too afraid to do anything about it. So I just like <laughs> let him chill. Um, don't know where he is now. Or she. Mm-hmm. You know what? I don't garbage. Yeah, probably in another garbage. Maybe in my neighbor's garbage. Like, what? I wasn't throwing away anything good enough. <laughs> Ooh, that's judgment right there. Yeah. <laughs> I don't need that kind of judgment in my life, raccoon. No. <laughs> so we have talked about so many incredibly sad things today. About the fishing population, of what we eat is changing, how tourism is changing things, and how the ecosystem as a whole is changing because of uh, effects like uh, climate change. Now, if you don't want me to cry myself to sleep tonight, let's talk a little bit about what we can do to prevent these changes. Definitely. Um There are a lot of helpful guides out there where people have looked at what fish species are more sustainable for us to eat. Um, So there's a lot of encouragement to obviously not eat fish, which are unsustainably being harvested or currently at very low population levels. Um, So there's a lot of helpful guides out there, including ones put out by NOAA, which is um, they have a National Marine Fishery Service. And they do a guide every year to essentially say, you know, what species are okay for people to be eating right now. And generally speaking, people also say you should try to eat local fish and you should try to eat fish that are not as high on the food chain. So things like swordfish, sharks, you know, really try not to eat them. There's health concerns for eating them as well. Um, But just generally speaking, those older, larger fish tend to have a harder time bouncing back when we fish their populations just because they're so slow to mature. It's kind of like eating an elephant versus eating a deer or a rabbit. Oh, interesting. (laughs) I get it. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Like, it's way harder for elephants to make new, you know, families of elephants than it is for, uh, I don't know, what do elephants eat? Wait, aren't elephants vegetarian? Oh, that's a different show. We're not going to do that. Let's not do that right now. So that's a really good thing. And where could we find this information? You said NOAA, and um, that's the National Organization. How about you just tell me that acronym? Yeah, it's the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration Fish Watch, which has is you know from the government what they think that the U.S. citizens should be eating. The Monterey Bay Aquarium also puts out a list, which is pretty popular seafood watch um i'm probably just saying all of these names wrong but i think if you google seafood eating guides sustainable eating guides they will be there there's a lot of also just like certifications like how you see you know usda organic there's 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 little stickers that people will put on their seafood labels if they get certified by these organizations so sometimes that can be helpful to to make wise seafood eating choices well, that is, uh, that's really good news. I'm glad that we can still eat fish, but do it sustainably. It's a matter of the species that we're eating, I guess, is uh, the, the situation. And does anything have to do with how those fish are collected? Like um, whether you have a more sustainable uh, fishery or if, uh, you know, you just got like one of those big bad fisheries spewing coal into the ocean. Um, is, does that kind of yeah. thing exist? 
Yeah, there there are definitely differences in the way that people catch things um, that affect how sustainable the fish is. So if, for example, you look at the Monterey Bay Aquarium Guide, they'll have um, what how the fish was caught, you know, in parentheses right after the fish's name. So if it was caught in a gill net versus a trawl, these are all words that may not make sense to people who are not in fisheries, but it's essentially referring to different ways of catching the fish. And some of those ways can cause a lot of bycatch, which is when you catch species, which are not the ones you're targeting. Uh So classically, you know, sea lions, sea turtles, other fish, dolphins, they've all been caught as bycatch. And often those animals will die if they're caught by bycatch. So some of the more sustainable ways of fishing are when you're really targeting that one species that you're trying to catch and not killing a lot of other species along the way. So those guides will tell you essentially like, you know, what are the good um, options? What are the alternative options that are okay? And then definitely what you do not want to be ordering food, um, ordering fish from, and they'll usually specify, you know, uh, salmon caught in the gill net should not be eaten or salmon from Mexico should not be eaten. They'll, they'll be that specific. Oh, wow. That is really incredibly useful. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today, Leanne. Really, you have given us so much valuable information about how we interact with fish in our daily lives and what we can even do to prevent uh, the situation of fish and fisheries from getting worse in the future. So thank you so, so much for talking with us. Of course, I love talking about fish and, you know, me becoming depressed about fish was why I started in this field in the first place. So... I'm sorry if I depressed you today, but I'm hoping that that means, you know, you'll actually want to do something about it. (laughs) Yeah, there's the silver lining in all of it. Oh, wow. This was a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. And really have a great day. And, you know, choose some sustainable fish for dinner tonight. (laughs) Thank you. You too. (laughs) All right.